from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. These are woods that could potentially become extinct if they weren't managed properly. Trees that would then get, you know, timber to become, uh, to become the soundboards that will turn into your musical instruments. The sounds reflect off of the walls, creating an active sonic environment, giving life and motion to the otherwise static space. I didn't really want to play back samples of what of sounds that have already been recorded in the rainforest because that really doesn't have a human element. Uh, if they can sense, uh, through probably vibration, which is how a lot of plants understand sound, that there's a pollinator nearby, they may actually start increasing their nectar production. I'm Rob Milam. It's time to head to the Missouri Botanical Garden on the south side of St. Louis and ask ourselves a question, what is the connection between plants and sound? A new exhibition opened on Friday at the garden's Stephen and Peter Sachs Museum. The museum's curator, Neska Pfeiffer, conducted research for more than two years on the complex relationship between plants, sound, and our environment. Our production assistant, Avery Rogers, visited the exhibition, and she learned some more. The sound of screeching birds, chirping bugs and wailing monkeys emanate from a room across the museum entrance. The Welcome Home Habitat installation is one of four components that comprise the new exhibition, Botanical Resonance, Plants and Sounds in the Garden. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes the sonic environment might not be pleasant sounding. Sometimes it might be really violent and chaotic, and at times the rainforest is like that. So it's not always this very soothing place, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, the familiarity of these sounds don't have uh, uh, an impact on the organisms that uh, exist in the environment. That's Kevin Harris, the artist behind Welcome Home Habitat. It is installed inside a dimly lit room with a low ceiling. Structural columns pierce through the space. The room is painted a soft gray and feels sterile compared to the gardens outside. The only foliage to be seen is on the screen of a single small vintage television on the far side of the room. Tall wooden stands with speakers perched on top dot the perimeter of the room. One stand also has two wooden panels with hands painted on them about chest height. They seem to be visual instructions. The panels vibrate in tandem with some of the sounds. Listening and feeling the vibrations, it is easy to picture what creatures might make these sounds. But in fact, these tones do not come from creatures at all. They are fully synthetic. I use samples as, as examples to guide me, but uh, yeah, all the sounds are synthetic. I could have used samples, um, but I really, I didn't really want to play back samples of what of sounds that have already been recorded in the rainforest because that really doesn't have a human element. Touching the panels and feeling the vibrations physically connects the visitor to the piece, and even though all the sounds are synthetic. 
they are representative of something very real and natural. The sounds reflect off of the walls, creating an active sonic environment, giving life and motion to the otherwise static space. One thing I wanted to accomplish is, is to um, make the sound very physical. I mean, it's, uh, the rainforest is obviously a very physical environment, so I wanted the sound not to just be something you hear, but uh, you know, something you can feel. In Welcome Home Habitat, there is a deep awareness of the intersection between human and animal, technology and nature, much like the space the Missouri Botanical Garden inhabits itself. Think of the Climatron and all the research happening within the garden walls and how, although they are full of flora and fauna, the assistance of human hands and hearts allow the community to experience it. A cold stillness fills the air in the staircase that leads to the rest of the exhibition, a stark and important transition between the synthetic sounds of the rainforest and the rest of botanical resonance. The main space at the top of the stairs is the nucleus of botanical resonance. It houses the research, the core, that all the art in the exhibition stems from. The space is lined with delicate-looking specimens in glass cases and instruments made of plants from all over the world. Each specimen is introduced with a detailed history, taxonomy, and in-depth scientific research about every leaf in the room. The research is heavy, with the weight of humans' negative impact on the environment. In a juxtaposition of the hard facts and glass cases is a room jutting off to the left, walls fully lined in a quilt handmade by Brooke Goldstein. Even the air feels different in the quilted room, slightly warmer, more quiet, insulated. Half of the quilt is comprised of bright colors, the other half is made of darker earth tones, and the whole of it feels somewhat unsettled. On the brighter side, large green rectangles with a sharp triangular peak repeats across half of the quilt, and shapes seem to float above them. On the other side, a complex network of darker fabrics with differing textures weave together, each one touching another. This installation is called Reverberations, reminding visitors that sound is central to this piece, even if there is nothing playing. The quilt visualizes an often unheard sound of grass being cut, but from the perspective of the grass itself and the root networks beneath the soil. The rest of the exhibition is in the garden, where you are encouraged to use your phone and your imagination. Annika Koppner's sound walks, Liquid Landscapes, gently guide visitors out of the museum and into the gardens, listening to the mp3 she created that is reminiscent of a guided meditation. Liquid Landscapes is a perfect transition out of botanical resonance and back into the gardens, this time with an increased awareness and understanding of the complex relationship between human, plant, sound and environment.
That was production assistant Avery Rogers, who visited the botanical residence earlier this month. And joining us now on the phone to provide more context on the exhibition is Neshka Pfeiffer. She is the curator for the Stephen and Peter Sachs Museum at the Missouri Botanical Garden. Neshka, thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. And while we're uh, just coming out of that piece, can you tell us some more about what a sound walk is since we were walked out to the sound of the MP3 that uh, that's going to be playing once you actually leave the exhibit? And why use a sound walk uh, in a scientific and historical exhibition about plants to begin with? Great question. Uh, so Annika Koppner uh, is a European-based artist who develops sound walks uh, or has developed several sound walks for other botanical gardens. And when we met uh, in Amsterdam a couple of years ago, uh, we immediately sort of hit it off. And she uh, has so much training in shamanic studies and, um, you know, uh, horticulture therapy and using plants as a way to connect to the earth and her guided meditations which i was very lucky to participate in when we met uh, very much were one of were some of the best i had ever participated in she has such an incredible ability to tie people to the space that you're in as well as have you um, kind of focus your mind in other ways and when we talked about creating a sound walk uh, one of the challenges i feel that with the museum is that it's a building in what is a garden which has all this beautiful green space and multiple beautiful gardens for people to enjoy so how without actually bringing plants into the space because that's not so great for the objects that I may have inside. How can I continue to connect that concept? And for me, plants very much make up um, a part of my auditory environment. You know, when I go outside, I very much can tell how plants are affecting where I am. And that has always been something that Annika has considered where in her sound walks. So we talked about how this could potentially work to get people out of the building. I mean, to be centered in the building to start with and then move out and really understand and also participate in her unique skill of getting people to pay attention to where their consciousness is going and and to tie it to the land that's around them. And can you take us through the contents of what Avery described as the nucleus of the botanical resonance of exhibit that you've installed, your research that's involved in Yes, that? of course. So the the thanks to a huge team of um, museum interns, all of whom were mostly remote, were working remotely uh, for me over the last year and, and some, uh, we identified what some of the key plants were that are used to make very identifiable instruments. Um, so some a lot of Western instruments are included in such as a guitar, uh, which is actually provided provided by Taylor guitars, um, and a violin, clarinet, a handful of woodwinds. But I also have uh, several botanists here at the garden who all hail originally from South American countries, and they are of course, very well versed in plants and understand how humans have used plants and know some of the musical cultures of their countries. And so they very kindly uh, shared some of the instruments that they have in their collection. So we already knew what those plants were for those instruments. Um, And lastly, one of the big key things that I wanted to feature was our the different research teams that we have in Madagascar. The Gardens Madagascar program has been longstanding for several decades and focuses, of course, on ecological conservation. And we feature, uh, we're actually, our botanists are wrapping up a huge study, which is called the Precious Woods Project, to 
completely identify all of the ebonies and rosewoods that are in Madagascar that in historically have been used for musical instruments today for other lots of other things and the illegal timbering has always been a challenge for the Madagascar government to control so the gardens participation in this precious woods project has completely identified these very high value woods and identified if they're in some major environmental risk, if they're, you know, very, very threatened, uh, close to extinction, or if potentially they could be exploited economically in a safe way in terms of managed forestry. So in in, in, even though these woods today are not necessarily being used to make uh, instruments, other plants in Madagascar are being used to make instruments. And we already had a couple of items in the gardens, uh, William L. Brown Center Ethnobotany Collection that were ma- musical instruments from Madagascar, including a, a valia, which is a tube zither or type of zither uh, that you strum with your fingers. And when um, another intern of mine understood that in researching that object, there were a slew of other Madagascar uh, traditional Malagasy instruments that could potentially be included, and you know, I, I think- asked the team if they would be interested in, in finding those, and they did. And so we have those uh, instruments and those plants uh, represented in the exhibition too. And I think we even have an example of uh, one of those instruments. It's the Madovan that's from Madagascar as well. And it's be- in, in this case, we actually have it being played by Lambo, who's the same person who made it. Why don't we take a listen to that? That's really interesting. To me, that sounds like just listening to it, it's almost a mix between like a zither because of the string instrument and maybe even a a keyed instrument, not quite a piano, but something kind of different. Exactly. And I think that's what's so interesting. What we learned as we were researching fully um, these instruments, uh, Madagascar has been colonized by so many different cultures. Uh, the European cultures were actually some of the last uh, to, to do so. But uh, Indonesian traders, Arabic merchants all made, um, you know, got to Madagascar and brought their musical traditions with them. So, in fact, some of the forms of the instruments may look like guitars or violins, but the way that they're played is much more in tune with the musical culture of of uh, the Middle East or Southeast Asia. So I think that's also one of the reasons why it sounds, it's the, the instrument may not create the sounds that we would assume to. Well, that's really interesting. And that's actually getting use out of plants after the plants have been, well, killed, actually, in order to, to be able to make sound right. out of those plants. But do plants themselves use sound to communicate while they're still alive? Yes, or and they they can respond to plants. Um, uh, sometimes there's a there's still growing research on this, so we weren't necessarily able to do a lot uh, feature. But there is a um, a St. Louis uh, scientist, Dr. Casey Haller Finn, who's actually researching how um, a handful of different in, uh, insects, particularly leaf hoppers, use plants and trees to communicate with one another. Um, they can use a variety of plants to which to do so. Uh, but plants also have been recorded. Uh, if they can sense uh, through probably vibration, which is how a lot of plants understand sound, that there's a pollinator nearby, they may actually start increasing their nectar production because that will attract the pollinator to come pick up the pollen and then go out and continue the cross fertilization of that species of plant. So mm-hmm. uh, it's very much tied. We just we ourselves do not have the senses by which to understand the, the, what that sound is. 
are you saying we don't have the senses? Do we have any, I guess, more man-made reasons or abilities to be able to find it, either through computers or through different detection methods, or we have not found That's that That's growing. Yes, that's so yeah, the technology has to get to the point where it's actually able to record that. So that's starting to happen. But I think there's still probably even more sensitivity uh, that needs to get developed in some of that technology. And did your curation style come through music itself? How did you find yourself uh, trying or music or sound? How did you find yourself uh, gearing this particular exhibition, uh, leading it around with plants and with human beings and with sound? Uh, great question. I wish I had some musical ability um, outside of playing an instrument in elementary school. Uh, the the thing that I'm most concerned with in choosing subjects to curate for the Sachs Museum at the Garden is to look at ways that we uh, use plants and overlook them at the same time. But without them, these things wouldn't be possible. So uh, in meeting Annika, in fact, she sort of was kind of the genesis of like thinking, I was like, oh, well, if I feature, you know, if she creates these unique uh, works just for uh, the garden and the, uh, the museum at the garden, um, how else can I explore sound? And then it was just an immediate jump to, oh yes, plants are used to make musical instruments around the world. And it is uh, interesting to know that, you know, there are, while there are quite a few species that are used, uh, predominantly the gourd family, the legume family, and the grass family are used in many different continents uh, and many different countries to make. So there's something about the resonance and the structures of those plants that make them very good choices to create in musical instruments in a variety of forms. Now, we talked a little bit about the environmental issues surrounding that. How does the exhibition, as it's laid out right now, actually engage that? Well, we talk a little bit about the Precious Woods project that I described um, earlier uh, and kind of what that potentially will lead into in terms of future conservation, uh, but also, you know, a lot of ubiquitous grasses and plants that are, in fact, invasive, like certain bamboo species are very easily, you know, so some perhaps a, a way to manage those plants in the environments in which they've become invasive would be to potentially, you know, use them and harvest them for a lot of other things, including musical instruments. Um, one of the features that we have, Taylor Guitar and Pacific Rim Tonewoods are two uh, groups that are working. Taylor works with um, a managed forestry project in Cameroon for ebony because ebony is very important for fingerboards and necks in terms of their guitar production. So they've included a lot of the different bits of the guitar into the different woods that are featured there. But Pacific Rim Tone Woods, which is a company in the Pacific Northwest, actually has many managed forests of big leaf maple, spruce, and koa, which is a native tree to Hawaii, which is used often to make ukulele. And so these are woods that could potentially become extinct if they weren't managed properly. And they're also managed in such a way that they can produce really good examples of trees that would then get, you know, timbered to become uh, to become the soundboards that will turn into your musical instruments. And are there any native St. Louis area uh, trees or plants or anything of the such that's uh, involved in the exhibition that you have and that are used in the production of instruments um, that are out in the world? Well, we have a Missouri-based tree, um, and one of the features that we have uh, in focuses on information and objects provided by the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation. The Ozark Chin Chinkapin is a native Missouri chestnut species that is it's endangered. It's It's been affected by a fungal blight that has uh, really weakened the entire population throughout Missouri and other parts of the Ozarks. I think it's also found in Arkansas. And so the Ozark Chinkapin Foundation is looking to find ways to 
strengthen the existing um, uh, populations of trees, which includes like finding really good, um, you know, uh, particularly when they're getting ready to pollinate, to find ways to cross-fertilize trees to make them stronger against the blight. But as a tree that was found and used by indigenous peoples and then later colonial settlers, uh, they, this tree was used for a lot of re a lot of purposes, you know, dyeing and food and so forth, but also to make musical instruments. Uh, and we have a couple of examples, but specifically a mountain dulcimer from the Ozarks that was made um, from a piece of Ozark chinkapin, a, a fallen down one, not one that was you know actually cut and harvested because obviously they don't want to do that uh, but so we have a really beautiful piece of Ozarkana in the show as well botanical resonance plants and sounds in the garden is the show that Neshka Pfeiffer has spoken with us today Neshka is the curator of the Stephen and Peter Sachs Museum at the Missouri Botanical Garden Neshka thank you very much for joining us today thanks so much for having me this is wonderful Today's episode was produced by Avery Rogers with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.